Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, very glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today, as usual. So glad you're with us. Grab the stool and uh, let's get into it. Uh, Jim, I'm happy to report that the candidate I supported yesterday did, in fact, win the Republican nomination for Congress in Virginia's 7th District. So that should probably take some mystery out of it for anyone who was wondering. Uh, yes, Lee Vega, who's done a good job on our County Board of Supervisors going up against the insane Democratic majority uh, is going to be the uh, nominee. There were a ton of good candidates in this race. I was perfectly uh, prepared to uh, support whoever the nominee was. And now it's uh, on to hopefully uh, Vega defeating Abigail Spanberger in uh, in November. It's going to be a tough race, but uh, hopefully we can get it done, especially with the momentum this year. I was going to say Spanberger, you know, in a normal year would be really one of those litmus test uh, house races. I, I do kind of feel like, you know, considering how good the outlook is for Republicans nationally, I now almost think that's that that's not quite a gimme. It's not quite a certain one. It's going to be hard fought, but uh, it's one. It would be surprising if this was not swept up in the Republican uh, wave. But you know what? That's why they hold the contest. Don't take anything for granted. Let's go GOP. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope it happens. And it's a new district. You know, they, they redrew the lines here in Virginia. And so nobody's really run a general election in this district. So we'll see how it works out. But uh, hopefully, yes, Lee Vega can pull that off. But we also got a Republican Senate nominee in Alabama last night in Katie Britt, who's, I think, expected to win quite handily as uh, as the general election candidate. And uh, Muriel Bowser somehow won a third term, essentially, <laughs> by winning the Democratic nomination in Washington, D.C., uh, Rising crime, I guess, isn't a factor. All right. Uh, on Greg, to- <laughs> of course, VC residents love her. Just look at the wreckage. I have a record. <laughs> Takes a lot to get rid of them. I mean, I mean, they never really got rid of Marion Barry. Remember that. Uh, the feds uh, got rid of Marion Barry and then he won after and then he, he got out of back. prison. You know. <laughs> so it takes but a lot. But we all know who set him up. <laughs> It takes a lot to get fired by D.C. voters. Uh, All right. On to our good martini. But speaking of elections, let's go back to 2018. Uh, For the most part, a pretty good year for Democrats. But Republicans did pick up a couple of Senate seats then, thanks to uh, how the Democrats handled the whole Brad Kavanaugh fiasco. Uh, But it was the governor's races that uh, got a little bit dicey in a number of states, one of which was Florida. We forget about it now because, you know, we've seen how effective Ron DeSantis has been. But remember, we had the whole Broward County overtime and then there was a statewide recount and uh, DeSantis barely beat Andrew Gillum. Uh, and since 2018, Andrew Gillum has uh, proven time and time again why it's a really good thing he was never governor. He had the whole uh, crystal meth thing in the hotel room. Uh, at, I remember if that was in Miami or where that was, but now he's uh, apparently about to be indicted. This is from Mark Caputo over at NBC News. Andrew Gillum, the once rising Florida Democratic star who narrowly lost his 2018 gubernatorial race against Ron DeSantis, has told associates that he expects to be indicted in federal court as early as today for alleged fraud tied to his campaign. The exact charges are unclear in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Florida would neither confirm nor deny details about the criminal case against Gillum. In a written statement to NBC, Gillum acknowledged the case but said it is politically motivated without offering specifics. And Jim, uh, the details are murky now, 
but I believe Gillum was under FBI investigation even during that campaign. So apparently uh, some things don't change very much. And Florida voters, wipe the brow. You really dodged a bullet in 2018. Indeed, Greg, fairly deep in that story, there's this just, you know, kind of paragraph that usually would stand out and doesn't feel quite as strange uh, as it used to in these uh, today's modern politics. Quote, the indictment marks a new low for Gillum, a married father of three who withdrew from public life as a political leader and paid CNN commentator after a March 2020 sex scandal involving a suspected male overdose victim in a South Beach hotel. First, if this is, are we sure this is a new low? <laughs> because that seemed pretty darn low. That's yeah. that's pretty darn bad. Secondly, if you're going to have a jaw-dropping, really bad uh, public scandal, I guess a good time to do it is March 2020. A lot of yeah, things changing right around that. <laughs> that was when COVID-19 shut down the whole world, including the United States. If you if you took you a while before you remembered this news about Gillum, that's probably why. Um, now, what's worth noting is that this investigation apparently is in, before his run for governor and occurred when he was mayor of Tallahassee starting in 2016. I think, you know, besides the chortling we can do and just the recognition of, oh, my goodness, you know, uh, thank goodness Florida got it right. I think one of the things that this illustrates is that every cycle there are some, you know, Democratic candidates that really catch the media's eye and make a big splash outside of the state or district that they're running for. And I've complained about the great, you know, the, the great Democratic Southern hope that we seem to get every cycle. Every cycle, whoever's running against Mitch McConnell is considered, ah, oh, it's going to work, or Jamie Harrison against Lindsey Graham, ah, oh, you know. In each one, uh, probably one of the great uh, champions of this would be uh, also uh, in you know that cycle, Stacey Abrams. Uh, I know some people are saying, "Oh, you mean Governor Stacey Abrams?" <laughs> Gillum was probably next to Abrams the most uh, lauded and celebrated gubernatorial candidates for the Democrats that cycle. He, he fell short by a little bit, better than most Democrats had done in gubernatorial races. Um, and actually, a couple of them, Rick Scott by one percent. So maybe Democrats were used to losing by small margins in Florida. Clearly, he reacted to that defeat terribly. But there's not a ton of scrutiny that goes into this. You kind of show up, you get the right kind of hype, you're good enough on the stump, you give good speeches, and Democrats just fall in love with you. Uh, actually, I guess you know, Beta O'Rourke probably be another terrific example of this phenomenon. Um, I, I, there's not a great of due diligence that is done once that media hype starts. There's not a great deal of scrutiny. Nobody wants to hear that this new rising, you know, golden boy hero is going to have some sort of flaws or questions or problems in their background. Um, so we'll see how this shakes out. I think, you know, Florida Democrats are relieved that he is not an incumbent. Florida Democrats are relieved that he largely has disappeared from public life. But it does seem like another ignoble chapter of a candidate getting wildly, wildly hyped and being a much more flawed individual than that media hype suggested. No, that's exactly right. And all three of those that you mentioned lost. Uh, perhaps the media helped them get closer than they otherwise would have. But, uh, you know, all the money in the world, especially if you talk about Beto and all the hype in the world, uh, can't get it done when the electorate is moving in another direction, even in a strongly Democratic year. That's that's uh, the amazing thing. And uh, while we don't think about it much, uh, the Democrats have not won a gubernatorial race in Florida since 1994. So let's hope that streak doesn't change. Hmm. Uh, all right. Uh, there's not only the 2022 election, of course. Uh, we also have 2024 coming up. Uh, and we also want to let you know that uh, in light of that, Three Martini Lunch brought to you in part today by the Presidential Election Project. 
Imagine a scenario in 2024 that's similar to 2020 with questions about irregularities in votes and even, you know, debates and fighting and recounts of votes in key states. Except this time, it's not Mike Pence, but Vice President Kamala Harris, who is being urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she has the right to determine which electoral votes count. And why? Because the Electoral Count Act just isn't specific enough. The Presidential Election Project wants to see this changed. So go to presidentialelectionproject.com now to sign up and get updates. Uh, learn more about this very important procedural ceremony and what steps Congress is taking to reform and clarify our electoral process. The project urges you to visit presidentialelectionproject.com and sign up to get updates so that by 2024, there's no question that Vice President Kamala Harris won't have the power to overturn those results. Again, presidentialelectionproject.com. The chance for nuclear war increases every day that the war in Ukraine continues. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, national security expert Brandon Weikert and I also discuss how China is weaker than Russia in one key area, why Taiwan's defenses are dangerously weak, and how Joe Biden wants to make the same mistake with Iran that we did with China. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And one of the things that you and I always get a kick out of when it comes time for a major election season is the Democrats, who always claim they're not like those other Democrats. I play the banjo. I wear a cowboy hat. I drive a pickup truck. I'm not like those other ones in Washington. And uh, this year, it seems that the award is probably headed towards Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, although Mark Kelly of Arizona is doing his best to... Uh, make this claim as well. But uh, despite the imaging, uh, the voting record tells a much different story. Free Beacon with the story on uh, Tim Ryan. Uh, it says, what do you do when you're running for office as a Democrat in President Joe Biden's America? Talk like a Republican. From praising former President Donald Trump on trade to sounding the alarm about the southern border, Congressman Tim Ryan is trying his hardest to avoid being lumped in with the rest of the Democratic Party. Earlier this month, Ryan proposed a House resolution that would designate fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. That resolution appears to be lifted from a bill proposed the day before by one of the most right-wing members of the House. Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of Colorado has also called fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction that is destroying our nation. Uh, Ryan, who will face uh, Republican nominee J.D. Vance in November, is considered a long shot by political analysts, although the polls have him within the margin of error right now. But here's the problem for Mr. Ryan and why it makes this crazy. According to 538, which is not exactly a right-wing outfit, Jim, uh, for Ryan, executing the strategy could prove difficult. 538 found that Ryan votes in line with Biden's position 100% of the time. That's exactly what we're seeing from Mark Kelly when he's saying anything at all. He's basically uh, hibernating, but uh, he, of course, is trying to pretend that he's uh, middle of the road as well. Jim, the voting record doesn't lie. Greg, the first thing is I'd really love if Tim Ryan would begin his ads. Hey, you know that Lauren Boebert figure out of Colorado has got some really good ideas. <laughs> the second thing that jumps out of me, Tim Ryan can at least point to the back. A couple of years back, it was when he did this, but he did challenge Nancy Pelosi to be speaker. And so if you want to say I'm a different kind of Democrat, yeah, OK, I'll give you a little bit on that one. But the 100 percent voting rate with the Biden administration does not help any. Um, and I just want to point out that if you're I, I'm, I'm curious about how national Democrats feel about Tim Ryan campaigning this way, 
because it certainly looks like he and J.D. Vance are basically like, I'm the true populist in this race. No, no, I'm the true populist. You know, and it'll be interesting to see just how much the policy distinctions are there when one guy is touting his Trump endorsement and the other guy's running ads talking about how much he agreed with Trump. Um, I think there's also a very strong indicator of the strength of the Trump brand in the state of Ohio. But Mark Kelly is the one that really jumped out at me because he's been so quiet as a new senator from Arizona. Uh, he's only up for two years because he was filling out the remainder of one of the terms. And it was, it was, you know, it, he's running an ad, surprise, surprise, where he's saying, look, I'm not like those other Democrats, once again, in which he says, you know, I'm going to, you know, we can't afford to wait this out. So I'm pushing for solutions today, even if it means taking on my own party. And I don't know about you, Greg, my first reaction was, was like, when I heard that or saw that, I was like, where? When? When are you taking on your own party? You you haven't taken a position, you know. Um, and so apparently he's pointing to a letter he sent to his party. I, I believe, Greg, it was a firmly worded letter. That's that's not tough. <laughs> Stern, even. Um, now, when it comes to actual voting, he doesn't get the perfect 100 that Tim Ryan does, but he votes with the Biden administration 97.7% of the time. Um, now, one of the things that's useful over there at 538 is that they look at this rate, they track this rate, how often a uh, representative or senator votes with the Biden administration's preferred position on uh, legislation. And keep in mind, some of this stuff is renaming a post office or something like that. It's not particularly you know, controversial. Um, but basically, you know, there's the, the cases of Kelly opposing the Biden administration, exceptionally few and far between. And they point out that, you know, how much you'd expect a typical senator from that state to vote that way. Uh, basically, Kelly is voting with Biden 18% more than you would expect. I'm curious if that's, you know, calculating other House members from Arizona or Kristen Sinema's position. I mean, Sinema Mansion, those folks can say, yes, I am indisputably a different kind of Democrat. I've been chased into bathrooms to prove it. Mark <laughs> Kelly, you can't do that. You really can't, you know, even pretend to be one. And it's kind of ludicrous that the guy who's been on the side of a milk carton for the past 18 months now is posing as the second coming of, uh, I'm trying to a good example, Joe Lieberman or um, uh, any other, you know, uh, uh, Zell Miller or any other strikingly, you know, conservative Democrats. Come on, give us a break. Not plausible. I, hopefully the voters in these states don't buy it. Yeah, I certainly hope not. Did you know he's an astronaut? <laughs> and my voting record is out of this world. <laughs> well, uh, pretty... Uh, he's also a space cadet. <laughs> Got a pretty ugly uh, Republican primary going on in Arizona. So uh, whoever comes out of there hopefully won't be too uh, bloodied by the intra-party fight. But uh, uh, we'll see who emerges from there. I think uh, that will determine... Kelly's likelihood of uh, winning a full term. Uh, this is the, f he's the fourth person to fill out John McCain's term. McCain, of course, before he passed away. Uh, then John Kyle briefly. Uh, then it was Martha McSally. Uh, and now it's, uh, and now it's Mark Kelly. I don't know if that's ever happened before, but four people in one term. Amazing. All right, uh, on to our next uh, lovely sponsor for the day, and that is NetChoice. Uh, from inflation to national security to lackluster leadership, Americans have many concerns about the direction of their country. But instead of taking responsibility for their own policies, progressives are blaming businesses for rising prices, and they want to use heavy-handed regulations like radical antitrust reform to achieve their goals. Progressives want to put big government in charge of our internet, attacking our own while global competitors like Europe and China are closing the gap. 
Conservatives must stop progressives from causing more inflation with more red tape and bigger government. NetChoice wants you to join them in telling our representatives to oppose a radical antitrust agenda, including Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992. And you can do that at netchoice.org 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim, on to our final martini, another crazy martini. And this one's courtesy of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who was just in one of our bad or crazy martinis on Monday for suggesting we're not headed to a recession. And now we might understand why, Jim, because uh, Secretary Yellen has decided, you know, not all recessions are created the same. So maybe we need to come up with a different measurement for what constitutes a recession. Her exact quote, the traditional recession indicator of two consecutive quarters of negative growth has typically worked, but recessions are not all the same. So Jim, if you're wondering why all the indicators are looking towards a recession, we'll know next month, uh, just a few weeks here, whether we have a second quarter of negative growth, which would technically be the definition of recession, and why under those circumstances, Biden would be out on the beach on Monday morning saying, hey, we're not going to recession. What are you talking about? You're spreading false news. Uh, maybe that's why. Maybe they're going to come up with some other definition. So it's not really a recession, even though, once again, we all know it is. Yeah. So, you know, quick refresher. The first quarter of 2022, the U.S. experienced a GDP shrinkage of about 1.5%. So there's your first quarter. And, you know, we'll get numbers for the second quarter on July 28th. This comes from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis. They do revise those figures. Uh, usually the change is like one or two, you know, one-tenth of a percentage point in either direction. Um, they usually don't get it, you know, all that wrong. Now, we don't know exactly what they're going to be, but look, the country's got high inflation. The country's got really high energy costs. The country's got uh, a labor shortage. It's got supply chain issues. We've got a whole bunch of problems in our economy and the possibility, you know, it's not like the economy feels completely different now than it did in January, February, and March. So you wouldn't be surprised. We don't know what they're going to be, but they're probably not going to be that good. I'd say the range of outcomes probably is exceptionally small growth to staying flat or a significant drop. As luck would have it, a couple of the Federal Reserve banks actually regularly update their project, you know, kind of update and kind of calculate what they think it's going to be. Uh, checked it in yesterday. The Atlanta Fed says this, you know, the GDP growth in the second quarter will be 0.0%, staying flat. So you're going to see a lot of semantic arguments about whether that counts as uh, two consecutive quarters of GDP shrinkage. Technically, it's not shrinking. It's also not growing. You don't have any growth. I think most people would say that's a de facto recession, but you could see some semantic arguments about that. You could see the St. Louis Fed, uh, slightly cheerier. They believe that in this quarter, we're going to have GDP growth of 0.0273. I salute them for their exceptional precision in that figure, but let's face it, that's just barely above zero. And that would be, you know, not a recession, dodging a recession by the skin of the teeth, but still pretty bad. Um, now, the New York Fed does not do quarterly updates, but they do kind of look at the whole year. And currently, they are projecting that U.S. GDP will contract by six-tenths of a percentage point this year and then another five-tenths of a percentage point next year, um, which is really grim and worth noting that the overall Federal Reserve projections are not that they're projecting 1.7%. So maybe the New York Fed is being too pessimistic. Maybe the St. Louis Fed is being a little too optimistic. But like I said, we know the range of options is not going to be that good. Now, I will give Yellen a molecule of credit to say it's kind of unusual to have a recession when you have low unemployment. The unemployment rate is very low. You and I in past episodes have talked about the workforce participation rate. And the other odd factor here, and you're usually like, oh, the recession, well, it's because you have so many people out of work. 
this recession or near recession that we are currently experiencing, well, obviously the biggest, you know, the biggest factor and the biggest drag on the economy right now is inflation. But I also think the worker shortage is a major exacerbating factor here. Uh, it's been several months now that we've had north of 11 million unfilled jobs. It hit a record earlier this year. And you can blame uh, everything from people changing their priorities during the pandemic. You can look at people who chose to retire early during the pandemic. You can look at people who are, uh, you know, decided that they just didn't like their jobs and, and you know, people who you know, decided to live on government aid longer. You can look at people going back to school. There are a whole bunch of factors that are, you know, keeping people out of the workforce. But in the end, without people to do those jobs, it's very hard to increase productivity, which means it's very difficult to increase your gross domestic product, which is obviously pointing to a recession, which could have eventually effects that ameliorate the effects of inflation. But generally, it's not going to be any fun to get through there. So I can see why Yellen's like, well, it's kind of a different kind of recession. Yeah. You know, I've heard when I wrote that yesterday, some people are like, Jim, there are other definitions of recession besides the two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Yeah, but generally these are amongst, you know, economist eggheads who are debating about very technical terms with each other. Bottom line is the country is going through economic bad times, and it's very tough to see how that changes between now and November. And honestly, I got to tell you, 2022 does not look good. And I think the interesting question now is how much better does 2023 look? Or are we looking at a multi-year, uh, you know, economic period of stagnation, low growth and or, you know, official or unofficial recession? Yeah, excellent analysis there on a number of fronts. And I think uh, pointing out the labor shortage is a major issue, the great resignation. Uh, her further quote was, there are deep recessions, there are shallow recessions, there are recessions that have rapid recovery, there are recessions that might raise the unemployment rate slightly, but not a whole lot. And so, I mean, she's right. Uh, some recessions are worse than others, obviously, but I'm not sure that uh, the, the factors here, the indicators are suggesting that this one's going to be a minor blip, but we'll see. Jim, on that cheery note, enjoy the rest <laughs> of your Wednesday, and we'll talk to you again. not the bad martini? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Karumbas, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. Thanks very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Um, find us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday and please join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. That's a great and evergreen point about just about every legislative solution that Congress comes up with, which is more funding when the problem is structural. The problem is efficiency. This country is so and I genuinely mean it when I use the word decadent, that we cannot perform basic functions no matter how much money we throw at them. And Uvalde is sadly a very good example of that. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.